The purpose of Retire with Style is to help you discover the retirement income plan that is right for you. The first step is to discover your retirement income personality. Start by going to resaprofile.com style and sign up to take the industry's first financial personality tool for retirement planning. Weston may not have helped us write the Risa fight song this time round, but he is really good at explaining investment stuff. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Retire with Style. It's a foursome today. We've got uh, myself, Bob, Wade, and a very special guest, Weston Wellington. And I will let Bob do the intros, Bob. Take it away on Weston. Absolutely. Great. Thanks, Alex. Um, so as Alex just mentioned, uh, you know, we got a really great guest in today, uh, Weston Wellington with Dimensional Fund Advisors. Um, so if any of you have some connection to Dimensional uh, as a client or whatever it might be, you probably know what we're going to be talking about here with Weston. Um, but, you know, the official idea or official title Weston has is what was it? VP of investment strategy. Um, but really what he does is he explains stuff. Um, you know, he takes all of the really, really complicated, smart regressions and math and numbers and tries to make it reasonably understandable uh, to normal everyday people. And uh, frankly, he does a really, really great job of it. And so we really wanted to bring him in here today as we're getting into talking about how the financial media impacts investors. So we've talked a lot about kind of investment strategies, approaches, basically why active management doesn't work, why you can't time the markets, why technical analysis doesn't work, why fundamental analysis doesn't work in the way that you think it does, or at least the people doing it is hoping it will do. Um, and now we really want to dive into, you know, how do you deal with all of just that noise around you that the financial media is putting out there? Alex always is talking about how he's watching CNBC at lunch. Um, for, for hey, current current events, Bob. For current <laughs> events, Bob. Okay, don't judge me. Hey, yeah. don't judge me, Bob. Yeah. For current yeah. events. No, there, there's some judging going on here, Alex. Alex. The new hot stock tip. <laughs> <laughs> is that what that was, Alex? <laughs> yeah, Palo Alto Networks is going down. <laughs> really, what we have like, West on here to do is just to to rip into Alex for watching CNBC. Um, but no, I mean, really, what we want to do is Weston has a wealth of experience with looking at what the financial media is saying. And then literally, you know, two or three years later, coming back and checking it, you know, providing some of that, fa not fact checking. That's, the, that's kind of the wrong word, the accountability um, of what they're doing. So, you know, we really wanted to bring Weston in for that. So Weston, thank you so much for your time here today. Um, and yeah, I think we'll start with kind of the big picture question. 
does the financial media help investors? Let's let's start there. Well, let me first say I'm not trying to demonize the financial media. There are a lot of bright people who work for these organizations, and they certainly have their their ultimate, the investor's best interests at heart. They're really trying hard, as hard as they can, to understand what's going on in the markets of the economy and try to provide some uh, a roadmap, if you will, or education for their readers. Uh, unfortunately, what they're up against is uh, a market system that if it's working properly, and I believe it does work properly 99.9% of the time, it's much more difficult to process the information we receive in daily newspapers or magazines and try to improve our portfolio results relative to all the other people who are reading the very same newspapers. That's the challenge. And it's such a difficult challenge that uh, many people fail to appreciate just the scale of the difficulty. And no matter how many times they may have a, an unhappy experience following advice they, they read somewhere, they see there's, they don't feel there's any real alternative and they try to find another expert who somehow will be able to crack the code this time around. But if yeah. markets are working properly, what we should expect to see is that not just individual investors reading newspapers, but also the, the majority of professional money managers who are paid to do nothing but try to analyze all this news we should expect to see they fail to achieve the objective of outperforming markets as well. Yeah, and that's so actually... Can, go ahead. I apologize, Weston. Go ahead. So if, if we understand how markets work properly, it leads us to the conclusion that for the overwhelming majority of investors, the ideal strategy is simply to diversify broadly and then stop reading the newspapers or read the sports section for entertainment. No, oh, no, a hundred percent. And wait, just because uh, I, you know, when when I started at McLean, you know, we we, we made a switch to DFA, and so I've been sort of well versed in this. And Bob, you know, coming from DFA as well. But as Weston said, Weston is kind of like the the. In, I, I got a good title here, Weston. I don't know if it works or not. You had said VP or whatever. How about the info? You lead the infotainment division. Of DFA, I'm not a I'm not a real numbers guy. I'm a storyteller. There you go, exactly. And and by the way, Wade, I, Weston, I think it's a great name, Weston Wellington. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. I thought it that fits well. the yeah yeah yeah. It fits the whole story arc here. So technically, uh, Weston Jeffers Wellington. Oh my god, even better. <laughs> Even even better. No, 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 no. I think it's great. And the the last point that I, I think here is because we mess around. Bob likes to throw out some words every now and then and just catches us by by surprise. There was one word you used, and I think it fits into this arc here. That I, I at the time I, did, I didn't know it. Uh, no surprise, but I even looked it up when you were talking about the media. And and the phrase that you use is the media's prurient interest. In, well, actually, in forecasting uh, and, and things like I, uh, that. And I, and I was like, what? What is that? I, I, I stole that shamelessly. There was an article um, <laughs> quite some time ago by Jane Bryant Quinn, 
one of the more That's responsible right. yeah, there was financial a slide journalists. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. In slide. my opinion, and the, and the bold headline for her article was the big tease. That's right. How the financial media appeals to our prurient financial interest. And so I looked up prurient, and it, I think the dictionary <laughs> says something like excessively interested in improper matters, especially <laughs> sexual nature. So if we substitute the word financial or sexual, we get our concern as people trying to educate investors. We don't want people to be luridly focusing on improper matters associated with the financial markets. Look, it's, it's a phrase I probably heard at this point 20 years ago, and it stuck with me, and I'm bringing it up because it was just such a cool... You know, such a cool use of wording there that I was like, you know, I figured, Wade, you'd like that one as a I as an homage to to Bob. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> SAT word of the day. <laughs> That's right. That's our word um, of, word of the day. But and the other the other thing that caught my attention a lot when you did this because going into the media and you know you can sort of let it rip is how investment advice. You said there they have no other things available to them. How investment advice is kind of seen as the ability to forecast. That's how most people yeah. think of investment advice. And it's it's perfectly sensible. You would imagine people who spend their lives studying all these companies and economic data would be more successful than you could in identifying what's going to happen next and more precisely, which companies I should invest in and which companies I should avoid. And so almost no one come to the conclusion that listening to these experts is a waste of time unless it's carefully explained with a logical reason to do so. And so what I've done for the last 28 years here at Dimensional is try to come up with simple explanations and simple stories to illustrate why is it that in almost any other field we can imagine, we want to go to an expert doctor. We want to go to an expert attorney if we have a legal problem. We want a CPA to do our taxes. Why wouldn't it make sense to go to some so-called stock market expert to figure out what the best companies are to own? And that's where I'll say, well, do you have five or 10 minutes and we can kind of go through a couple of simple thought processes here and maybe change your thinking a bit? Yeah, and, and so then how do you approach it? Because in my head, your presentations were okay, I'm going to just lay the groundwork for what investment advice is, knock that down, or just you know challenge you on that. I'm going to sort of bring up mutual fund managers and show you the results of that. But forget mutual fund managers. Let's go direct to the stock pickers and you know hit them. You know What, what led you to that thinking in terms of how am I going to present a story around all these stats that I can show in a manner that doesn't bore somebody? Well... My first order of business is to try to eliminate as many stats as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then just focus on whatever the stats may show us, why would we have expected to see that outcome? Why would the world work that way? So I'll start off with maybe just a couple of simple stats and say, dear Mr. and Mrs. Mr. Investor, roughly speaking, how many stocks do we have today in, let's say, the New York Stock Exchange? Well, roughly speaking, I don't know, around 2,800. Okay. Uh, how many investors do we have out there? Well, a lot more than 2,800 all over the world who <laughs> might choose to invest in some companies on the New York Stock Exchange. 
probably millions, tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions. And they're all looking at that list of 2,800 companies. And they're all trying to determine which ones among those 2,800 are going to be the ones I want to own now and which ones do I avoid? Now think of the brain power associated with all those individuals combing through these 2,800 companies. They're talking to chief executives. They're scrutinizing the annual report. Some people may have knowledge about new products are, that are going to come out because they work right inside the company or they're a supplier or they're a competitor. There's thousands upon thousands of bits of information that all these tens of millions of investors have and the function of the stock market. The reason we have it is that it serves as a way to aggregate. We take all this information from all these participants who are reflecting this information in prices that they're willing to pay or to accept when they buy or sell these stocks. Now, I would argue that almost everyone has some little bit of knowledge that might be useful in assessing the state of the economy or the prospects for any company. And someone in the audience might say, well, I'm, I'm nothing special. I don't have any particular information. I would say, well, let's take an example. Suppose you're the dentist in Peoria. Who knows better than you? if your patients are paying you on time or not? Probably nobody. Now, is that a big piece of information? No, but if there's a mechanism to aggregate all this information into one place where people can act on it, that's the stock market. So what happens when people gather in the stock market? What do we all wanna find? We wanna find the great companies. We wanna avoid the crummy companies. So it seems logical that with all this information about the prospects for companies, people are going to be willing to pay higher prices for companies with clearly better prospects. They're more profitable. Their sales are growing more quickly. They have terrific new products in the pipeline compared to other companies whose prospects may be dismal. Sales are falling. The chief executive was just fired. But here's the thing. If we look at all those 2,800 companies, they trade every day. Somebody bought shares in the worst performing companies that day, the ones with the worst prospects. Somebody sold shares in the stocks of the very best positioned companies. That's the definition of a trade. Every time a trade takes place, there has to be a buyer and there has to be a seller. So there's a whole universe of companies, and it seems perfectly plausible that the great companies will sell for higher prices than the mediocre companies. But there has to be some price for that mediocre company to attract a buyer or else a trade wouldn't take place. So the way the stock market functions is, the cheap companies, the mediocre companies will sell for lower prices. Maybe if the company has really dismal prospects, it will be an extremely low price. Just as maybe if a certain company has absolutely glowing prospects, the price is likely to be pretty high. But in every case, 
for all these companies, the overwhelming evidence is that the prices are fair. They properly reflect all the prospects for all these companies. Now, what's the implication if prices on average are fair for all the companies? It means no matter how hard you try to find the very best companies in the hopes of getting a better return, most likely because you have to pay such higher prices, they won't do any better in the stock marketplace over time than the mediocre companies or the really crummy companies. Now, do we see evidence that this can work? Is this what actually happens? We have financial economists who have studied these things for decades. We started to have good data about daily stock market returns for careful analysis along with the early computers back in the mid-1960s. And it was an article of faith at that time among most professionals that, well, if you're a professional, you should be able to do a better job picking stocks than just buying the whole mass of stocks. Well, what the finance professors began to discover was that that wasn't true. They would take the performance records of all these so-called experts and compare their results to just a simple, let's just buy every stock and do nothing. And time and again, <laughs> the do nothing strategy, the do no forecasting, the do no stock picking strategy did better. Weston, let's frame it in the positive. Moment. Let's frame it in the positive. The going to the beach strategy. That way there's, some, <laughs> the there, there's, there's something. There's more time for golf. The lower your handicap strategy. <laughs> there you go. The lower your handicap. I, I had, a, I had a, uh, an advisor say, you know, my, my client saw your presentation. What really nailed it for him was when you talked about this was the low handicap strategy. You have more time for golf, so you've got your golf game better. I love that, he said. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, it's hard for many people to believe that, but the numbers, when they first came out, many people, many so-called professionals dismissed them. But as time went on, the, the iron logic of this approach has taken hold. And now so-called index-type funds, which make no effort whatsoever to do forecasting, are... I think there are eight out of the 10 largest mutual funds today are index funds, which didn't exist when this research first started. So there's been a very real shift in how investors perceive the wisdom or so-called wisdom of expert stock picking advice. And as a result, investors have a better chance of having a more pleasing investment outcome. It's been a, a great innovation uh, triggered by academics in the ivory tower, but it's made a very real difference to the everyday investor who is now getting better returns than they were decades ago. Yeah. And I mean, I, and to bring it back to the financial media aspect of this, they've still got to say something, you know, they've still got to talk about something. There's only so many ways that you can say diversification is a good thing. Um, and the thing to remember is if you if you pay somebody to make a forecast, <laughs> they will make a forecast. Yep. So they're trying hard. It's their opinion. And some of them will be right some of the time. Some of them will be wrong a lot of the time. When you add it all up, most of the experts are not able to add value for you as an investor. But so, 
we all have opinions. And if somebody wants to pay me for a strongly held opinion, I'll be happy to volunteer it. And actually going back to something you said a little earlier, you were talking about how, you know, we look to a lot of people look to the financial media for those predictions. But if we look at what mutual fund managers and money managers generally do, which is all they do, they don't actually beat the market themselves. And I think that's a really, really right. important point to emphasize. And we actually right. talked about that last week, um, you know, to really dive into that and, and talk about well, these guys can't do it. Why do you think reporters can? Why do you think, you know, someone spouting off with all of those different incentive structures going on? Why could they pick Cisco versus EMC? I would even take that one step further before Weston answers and that, there's fo- I see CNBC and some of these folks are professional money managers, professional advisors. And I, I, I really know what they do for their clients, you know, but there is this duplicitous nature between what they do for their clients, quote unquote, indexing versus how they present themselves on screen, which is this, this sort of, a, you know, we're making we're playing with Bob about tap dancing, but they're just like a dancing bear on screen to kind of give this illusion of value by moving deck chairs on the Titanic kind of thing, where at the end of the day, they, you know, what they do for their, what they, what they say is it's kind of different than what they're actually doing for their client. And they rationalize by, oh, this is just play money. And this is how I would fool around. But I don't think they realize people are looking at this for advice. And so they're doing everyone a, a disservice by continuing to spout on silliness, if you will. It's hard to sit still. <laughs> you, you, wait, do you mean me in general as a general matter or, or in particular this, this <laughs> just how meta this is topic getting here? <laughs> I mean, in most other spheres of activity, more activity tends to give you a better result. But this is one situation where it doesn't. It tends to be a 100%. I don't know who said it first, but maybe one of our financial advisor clients. But he says investment portfolio is kind of like a bar of soap. The more you handle it, the less you have. If you're looking for more personal advice, please note that our show is sponsored by McLean Asset Management. Learn more at McLeanAM.com. That's M-C-L-E-A-N-A-M.com. McLean Asset Management is a wealth management firm where we help you design and implement the right retirement plan for you. No, 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 hundred percent. The other, the other piece, and maybe you have some thoughts around this, is it's an interesting profession because a lot of times we just went through a, a series of podcasts on technical analysis, on fundamental analysis, on general market timing, etc. And a lot of times, I, I we made a point to say that the audience member could be listening to us and discount what we're saying because you know our, our conclusions are somewhat that if someone did happen to outperform. It's hard to remove luck from that equation. You can't disentangle luck from skill from that equation. And if you look at the persistency studies, et cetera, et cetera, you really have to tilt towards the answer of luck, you know, by and by. But, you know, to some extent, I don't know if that's a satisfying answer for folks listening in. Like, oh, they're just saying everyone's lucky. So, you know what, that has no counter to it. You know, how, how how do you respond to that if it ever does come up? Well, one of the things I like to point out is that in 2002, I believe it was, the Nobel Committee awarded the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences to an individual who had never taken a course in economics or taught economics. 
Well, why did they give this gentleman a Nobel Prize in economics? He's a psychology professor, Daniel Kahneman. And the award was for his recognition of the importance on, in the, the methodology uh, analyzing human behavior, particularly under conditions of uncertainty. And the, the, the most useful conclusion from not just Dr. Kahneman, but many other uh, researchers in his field is that for whatever reason, human beings appear to have evolved to be overconfident. Now, maybe it helped us survive when you're near starvation in the savannah, you know, many centuries ago. And if you're overconfident about your ability to hunt the next gazelle and get fed, maybe you're more motivated to get out of the cave and go find it. For whatever reason, humans do appear to be overconfident. There are all sorts of simple experiments that provide well-documented evidence. Uh, men are more overconfident than women, but all of us are overconfident to some degree. And that overconfidence can lead us to believe we are smarter in identifying patterns and trends in numbers than we really are. Now, most investors, particularly those who have any experience with investing in stocks, if you ask them, do you think stocks have a higher return than bank CDs or treasury bills, they'll say, well, yeah, sure. That's why I invest in stocks. Well, if you're an academic, like Bob's dad, Ken French, and you ask academics like him, well, how long does it take looking at the data to be confident that stocks have a higher expected return than treasury bills? Well, the answer will vary depending on what the data set you're looking at, but something around like 30 or 40 years. It was five years of data isn't enough. Ten years of data isn't enough. Twenty years of data starts to tell you something, but you're not really confident. You need so much data to be confident of your assessment that stocks are likely to outperform treasury bills. It's much more noisy than most investors realize. That's so they're the easily, often easily persuaded that a money manager with two or three or five or even 10 years of data performance is obviously telling me something about their smarts. Probably not. And I got one striking example by not mentioning any names. No, mention names, please. Well, I don't want to mention I mean, I, I've read what he has to say for years. He always has interesting things to say about companies and the outlook for things. And he, to the best of my knowledge, he ran a mutual fund for many years. And to the best of my knowledge, he's the only mutual fund manager to outperform the Standard & Poor's 500 index for 15 consecutive years. Oh, okay. Sure. No one had ever done it before. And to the best of my knowledge, no one since. Okay, so maybe he's the, the one exception that proves the rule. Well, so I, I kept a copy of that story. And then five years later, there was another story about the same individual who at that time had done so poorly with his mutual fund that he finished dead last out of something like 800 other mutual funds in this particular category. So question here for us as investors puzzling over this, was he really smart for 15 years and then suddenly got really stupid or was he maybe kind of lucky 
for those first 15 years. And, and then Weston, even to add on to that, um, you know, I, I, we're thinking of the same person here. If you measured his performance over those 15 years where he beat the S&P 500, but you shifted the start of the year to a different month, he, he did pretty well still, but he certainly didn't have that same sort of track record. It was luck, even at the sense of where do we start the measurement? Yeah. And you're, you're not, you, and both of you aren't even commenting on where was he driving those returns from? Because you had set, you, you, you benchmarked him to the S&P 500, yeah. but perhaps he was taking advantage of value premiums during a time when value outperformed. Hence, there was a mismatch, you know, relative to the risk of the S&P, but I, I digress there. It, it, that could also be the case, right? Yeah. I got, if you've got time, i got one more war story for yeah, you. Yeah, no, 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 no. Load it up, load it up. This is so, just uh, FYI. This is a conversation. So many I years when I was uh, working for another brokerage firm, and I was uh, technically their director of research, and so my job was to identify the very best no-load mutual fund firms. And there was this one firm that I visited, and uh, that was, that's how I came across Dimensional, actually. Hmm. But, uh, and there was a very engaging portfolio manager, real straight shooter kind of guy. And uh, he was among the several funds that he managed was a, uh, a small cap growth fund. I don't forget the exact, remember the exact name, but. Navalier? No, no, it just, no it's, I, remember the guy, I remember the portfolio manager's name. Like he still remained, he was, a, he was a good guy. And he said. They're all good guys. They're all good guys. <laughs> and so uh, he told this interesting war story about. Uh, the fund had gotten launched, I think, in early 1986 or maybe late 85. It was a very small fund in 1986. And in 86, there was a brief sort of rocket ship move in the so-called home shopping stocks. <laughs> home shopping network went public that year. Uh, okay. I don't recall the price of the IPO, but it skyrocketed in the aftermarket. Everybody wanted a piece of it. It went up something like you know, three or four or five times. It was just an enormous winner. Well, if you're a mutual, big mutual fund firm and you've got a stock allocation on a hot new issue, you get to kind of decide, well, which fund are you going to put it into? You're going to spread it around among a whole bunch of funds or maybe put most of it into one fund and see what happens? Well, they put most of it into one small aggressive growth fund that this guy managed. And because this one stock was such a superstar performer, the entire fund that year had a return, as I recall, something well over 100%. Well, pretty cool. So fast forward to like 19, it was 10 years later. So it would have been like 1995. I remember reading the Wall Street Journal. They would have their, their list of top performing funds. And the top performing fund for the previous entire 10 year period was this fund. And I thought, huh, that's kind of interesting. So then I checked the data on year by year and I discovered that for the most recent nine years, the fund had underperformed the market. But because it had such a sensational return that very first year, it carried the performance on an aggregated basis all the way through, and it was the number one performing fund for 10 years. And then if you think, okay, I can't prove it, but I think my suspicion is a lot of that terrific performance for that one first year was attributable to one stock <laughs> that did so well. 
So it's highly unusual, but there's a case where it appears one stock determined a 10-year super performance record. But it was a heck of a stock. It was a heck of a stock. <laughs> now, can we call the portfolio manager skillful for picking it? Okay, maybe some of you will. I think there's a big dose of luck in that 10-year record. But the, to get your hands on that one hot IPO that switched the performance record around. I, I think there's a lot of there's there's a lot of points here while you were you were speaking. One of them that that got me because you're right, and and you're you're pointing out these anecdotes, but there's there's tons of these, and we could go and talk about performance studies, the top five, how they do the next five years, but then this podcast gets boring, right? Uh, but this is relevant right now with the Arc Fund, right? And I'm sure. That's kind of the the punching bag of sorts. At least it will be, you know, soon enough. But what, the point that I was thinking of, what you were saying, that is okay. It's the top performing fund over the last ten years. But I'm willing to bet, and I'm off on the numbers because I'm making it up. But over ninety five percent of the investors in that fund today never experienced those returns. They've experienced returns that were poor, and I, I think this is something that's endemic in the industry where there's a top fund everyone money flows in and no one experiences the return i'm thinking of the arc fund even even but there's a lot of little there's an ecosystem of stories around that that i'd love for you to kind of uh unpack if you will well i think what you've you've uncovered a a a sore point among uh the investment community that you can find many examples where you look at the performance and you look at the cash flows and you can see that the preponderance of the money tends to come in after the terrific performance, not before. Yeah. As soon as that money comes in, they basically just start indexing because right. you want to lose it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think you're going to get that with, with, with a couple of folks that are the, you know, stuff that's happening right now. The other storyline I was thinking when you had mentioned uh, the sort of this one stock pick, you know, they've sort of carried them right for 10 years is newsletters. You know, I've seen ads for newsletters where it says our picks over the last 15 years have returned 10,000%, right? And one of those picks is Amazon and Tesla, you know, or two of those picks are Amazon and Tesla. And, okay, you know, nice, but, you know, they they discount the other ones or they don't even see, you know, are they equally weighted? Are they not equally weighted? You know, et cetera, et cetera. How would you... How would you sort of advise people, advice, or you know, provide advice to our consumers about how they should read, or what what questions they should be asking themselves from a from a you know strobe light detector when when folks are making statements like that, and, and how that game is really played among the newsletter audience, among the newsletter providers? Well, one thing I would like to point out is if someone is so successful <laughs> based on this newsletter record, alleged newsletter record. Why don't they start a mutual fund, even with a, a minimal amount of assets, and actually demonstrate that they can do it with real money? It's not enough to say, you know, writing from my basement on a computer, yeah, I did this. Well, show me you actually did it. That's the beauty of the mutual fund industry, is that the record is there for everyone to see. Did you do it or not do it? And again, I'm not going to mention specific names here, but I can think of one individual in particular who is, uh, I, I love reading his stuff. He's, he's, a, he's a, quite a cantankerous writer, although a graceful writer. 
and he's always willing to make very extreme predictions. Uh, but when I look at the record of the, the mutual funds and the fund family that he represents, I don't see much to talk about. So don't tell me about all the war stories about how you made this or that prediction. Tell me how you took that insight and actually either bought stocks or sold stocks at an opportune time to take advantage of it. Now we can all see and it's in effect independently verified. We just don't see it. No, I agree. And, I, and if I we think... look at, I tell people if there really were a, a recipe for timing the market, we should see it somewhere in the Morningstar database upon thousands and thousands of funds. It's not as if people haven't tried. There's a title of a Morningstar article, I think quite a few years ago, and it was about when another market timing strategy fund closed. Now, why does a mutual fund close? Well, in almost every case, there's one reason. They ran out of money because people got fed up with the poor performance and they cashed in and there was no more money to manage. Hence, they closed. Well, there have been any number of mutual funds over the past few decades that followed uh, or advertised that they followed a market timing strategy. Most of them have vanished. They vanished because they couldn't deliver on what they said they could do. Yeah, and it's even more to that point, you know, if someone could do that, um, they also wouldn't be telling you as a, you know, newsletter subscriber about it. Right. They've done it themselves and then be sitting on an island somewhere. They'd monetize it differently. They'd monetize it differently. They would monetize it differently. Yeah, if someone's willing to give it to you for 40 bucks a month, it's worth $40 a month. So Well, but even... Even then, because uh, because Wesson sometimes Wade, Bob, and myself, we, we get we, we we sort of we want to we don't want to come across as these sort of wet blankets all the time. So we, we throw in the hey, we'll give you the we'll we'll give you the the logic that maybe there is somebody that's very special out there. Maybe there's a him or her that's very special out there and can outperform. You know, bar it, it takes us thirty years to figure that out. So in year five, in year 10, maybe there's, you know, that, okay, maybe there's someone special out there. But if there was that person that could do that, you said newsletters, but they would charge you right up until the point of their value. You know, right. if, I, if I cannot perform the market by 5%, I'm going to charge you 4.99%. Right. You know, uh, thoughts on that, your observations well, on that? I would also take it, that, that's absolutely spot on, but I would also take it in a slightly different direction. Sure. And say, I mean, I think looking looking at the uh, the Las Vegas skyline, if you fly into the Caribbean <laughs> Airport, there are, there are glittering casinos as far as the eye can see. What's now, your favorite, by the way? <laughs> I'm not a gambler, so I can't even. Of course you're not. Of course you're not. Bob, is this I, true? I, I've been there for some client events. Of ago. course you have. But, <laughs> Cirque du Soleil. He's I mean, a Cirque du Soleil kind of guy. <laughs> most people go to Las Vegas if they're overconfident, thinking, yeah, I'm going to take the casino for some money. And most of them fly back a little poorer or maybe sure. a lot poorer. And, you know, the odds are against you, obviously. And it's obvious the odds have to be against you. Otherwise, there wouldn't be these billions and billions of dollars worth of glittering casinos that have been built. It's all been built with gamblers' money. 
Uh, they leave town with less than they brought. But I also do think that the reason, one reason we see glittering casinos is that for whatever reason, humans are hardwired to want to speculate. Yeah. It's fun. I mean, people have been doing it uh, since biblical times, if not before. So uh, I would always tell investors and advisors, you know, I don't, I don't think you should like scold people if they want to speculate. Just set up a separate, smaller entertainment account and go have some fun. You want to go to Vegas, you know, figure out how much money you're willing to lose and have a good time. See some shows, gamble, have some drinks. Maybe you'll make a little money. Most likely you'll lose, but have a good time. You want to speculate in stocks, the latest hot technology trend? Oh, fine. Just don't do it with your retirement savings. Do it with your entertainment account and go have some fun. This is don't make it a big part of your financial life. Weston, this is the, you brought up a word here that I, I want to sort of uh, unpack some more, and that's speculate. And 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 Bob, this is where I'm I'm going to bring in Dan Wheeler, and we, we spoke about him previously, and his and his passing, Weston, who was a, a super impactful guy within our industry. But uh, he said something that stuck with me as well. First, it was your purient comment that, <laughs> but uh, Dan said. What's the difference between speculation and investing? Because that's another term that people can throw back at us and say, oh, we're just being, uh, you know, selective. You know, if we think it's bad, we'll call it speculation. If we think you're doing the right thing, we'll call it investing. But Dad said, Dan said something that stuck with me, which was when you speculate, you're taking a bet that, you know, something may work out, may not, but I'm just betting, you know, that, that kind of thing. And like to your casino comment, hey, at least I had a good time. Where investing is that there is this expected return. Now, that's a phrase that I'm using, but there's some science behind that phrase for folks right. that are listening in, right? That we won't get right. into right now. We can get into when we get into the, the premiums and stuff like that. But when you're investing, there's an expected return over the long term that you're going to get for taking on a higher level of risk. What that time frame is depends on the volatility of that underlying asset class, et cetera, et cetera. But there's an expectation of a return that you could be fairly confident of getting. How do you present that concept to folks? Because I think it's important that speculation versus investing. Well, I would hark back to uh, earlier writers like Benjamin Graham, who uh, discussed much of the same thing. I think his uh, much of his book, Security Analysis, which really kind of laid the foundation for a, a genuinely intellectual, analytical approach to the investment question uh, really set the foundation for all the future security analysis and later financial economic science to come. And he emphasized the distinction between speculation and investment. And investment was much more determined by having some logical foundation for that expectation of a, either a certain income or a certain capital appreciation. Or a speculation, like you point out, is simply a hunch and you gamble with that hunch. And once again, nothing wrong with speculating as long as you understand it, speculating. And you need to learn the first, most, the most important lesson, I think as Dan would say, is to learn to distinguish between speculation and investment. And I think what if I may say a sort of a, a side uh, commentary here, I think 
a lot of the enthusiasm regarding crypto is a function of individuals unable to distinguish between speculation and investment. Curious if you should be looking at a Roth conversion or what a Roth conversion even is? Head over to mclaneam.com slash Roth to get McLean's free ebook, Is a Roth Conversion Right for You? And learn about when you might want to do a Roth conversion and when you might not. Just head over to mclaneam.com slash Roth to download your free ebook today. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. Uh, another point that Bob brought up in, in the previous podcast that, that I, I think merits, you know, just your take on, and that's because you brought up Graham and Dodd is the whole fundamental analysis because they're effectively the blueprint for fundamental analysis. And Bob was pointing out that fundamental analysis plays a very important price discovery role in the stock market. Unfortunately, the people that benefit from that price discovery are the folks that index as opposed to the folks that are actually doing the fundamental analysis. Right. What's the, what's the, let's westernize that concept a little bit. (laughs) Well, Benjamin Graham himself, often referred to as the father of security analysis, certainly made the case for the importance of engaging in rigorous fundamental analysis. But it's also, I think, telling that uh, shortly before he died, I think it was sometime in 1975 or 1976, Uh, He had some very kind words to say for the whole concept of indexing, meaning it didn't mean fundamental analysis was not worthwhile, but he was clearly smart enough to understand that with all the people engaging in this industry of fundamental analysis, as he so carefully laid out, the likely result was that security prices would be fairly priced. As a result of all that analysis, and as a result, if they're fairly priced, it means when you show up at the marketplace hoping to find undervalued securities, you're probably not going to find them because they're already fairly priced as a result of so many other people engaged in this fundamental work. No, and this goes back to your earlier comment. Let's just say there's roughly 3,000 stocks and 100 million investors. Good luck. Good luck. Good luck. Maybe you'll find it. Maybe you won't. Uh, how would you argue? Well, and not argue is probably too strong a word, but what would be your response to someone that says, yeah, but Weston, we're just talking now about newsletters. Those folks are, those are people that couldn't make it. You know, you're talking, are they're good writers or whatnot. They're history majors. No, I'm just kidding. They're film majors. And, and they, they couldn't make it, if you will. Uh, then what about mutual fund managers? Yeah, but those are long only portfolios. Those are very pedestrian, you know, where it's at. If you're somebody, you're going to make it in the world of hedge funds and and that world. And that's where it's at. Not, not this sort of vanilla mutual funds, active managed mutual funds. Yeah. Mutual, the argument goes mutual funds are for little people. They're fine for little people, but if you're smart and wealthy, (laughs) you've got something better for you. So I'm I'm blanking on the exact dates, but I think it was somewhere around 2007, Warren Buffett, the uh, famous investor and chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, he made sort of a public complaint about uh, hedge funds. And he says, you know, I've offered a wager to any hedge fund manager 
or people who want to select hedge funds. We'll have a wager. I'll put up money and I'll put it in an S&P 500 index fund and you take your hedge fund results and we'll, we'll run it for 10 years and let's see who wins. And whoever, whoever has a better performance wins the bet. And he said, and no one's taken me, not one hedge fund manager has taken me up on this bet. If they're so clever and they're so confident they can pick the right stocks because they're so smart, why hasn't one of them volunteered to take the other side of that bet? Well, finally, not a hedge fund, but a hedge fund consultant took him up on the bet. And so they bet, it was a million dollar bet, and started, I believe, January 1st, 2008, and it was to be for 10 years. And the hedge fund consultant could choose his uh, suggested hedge funds, several of them, if he chose. And Warren Buffett chose the S&P 500. And that was run for 10 years. At the end of 10 years, whoever wins, wins the bet. And they both agreed it would be donated to their favorite charity. So what happened the first year, 2008? You remember what happened to the S&P 500 in 2008? It got crushed. It was down 37%. The basket of hedge funds, I don't know what the exact return was, but it did considerably better than the S&P 500. So right away, Buffett is in deep in the hole. But after about nine years, maybe nine and a half years, he was so far ahead <laughs> of these hedge funds, so-called clever hedge funds, that his opponent essentially threw in the towel and conceded defeat. So you're saying they're and also they quitters. Ran... They're, on, they're underperformers and quitters. Well, well, he was a quitter for well, I mean, they ran their numbers for the whole 10 years, and I have the numbers buried somewhere if I can dig them up. No, it, the story's the same. Knowledge. But essentially, and it wasn't just that he picked three good hedge funds and two of them were so stinky that they lowered the – all five of the hedge funds underperformed the S&P 500. Some of them by a material amount. So here's a hedge fund expert who claims to be able to pick not just good hedge funds, but the very best hedge funds. And he can't seem to do it. If he can't do it, what are the chances you're going to come up and do better than he did? No. Uh, uh, no. No. <laughs> I mean, not in all, but it's, it seems like, the again, the odds are stacked against you. You're paying a lot of fees, and they try hard, and some of them do very well, but a lot of the other ones, they don't do so well, and they disappear. And so keep in mind, I tell people, you know, it's like if you went to a World War II bomber pilots reunion dinner, like in the, in the late 1950s, do you look around the room and say, you know, I look at all these happy guys having drinks here. I guess being a bomber pilot isn't very risky. <laughs> no, you're, you're only looking at the ones who came back. That's the problem with ignoring what we call survivor bias. You don't see the record in any database of all the hedge funds that disappeared. They're gone from the database. Yep. No, no, you're, you're, uh, you're very, very true. Uh, this is a, a kind of personal question here because we, Bob and I, when we started this, we we, we made a, a kind of a funny that, you know, when we started speaking with clients, we would make these PowerPoints and, and kind of take your concepts and just make them our own, if you will, right? 
that's Bob. That's code word for pretty much. We just stole his stuff. But 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 intellectual property. But we'll ignore that. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Forget that. But we would we would you know we would kind of okay. Let's see how let's see how let's see three years performance whatever. And we would update this. I, I made a point to say we used to update it quarterly. And then after a while, it's that sort of the song remains the same kind of thing. Then we right. just said, ah, half a year because things get busy. We'll update it every half year. Then after a while, we'll update it a year. And then you really have to push yourself to kind of keep on updating it because the stories that we just said remain the same over right. and over and over. And that's because right. of there's a reason for that, the economic underpinnings. Right. How do you, <laughs> it's that, I'm just curious. How do you push yourself to kind of do this? Because you are this – you're the the Pied Piper, if you will, of sorts uh, of these of these anecdotal stories that you put together. I mean, at, at, do you see this at a very meta level at this point, where you can kind of have this ready for the next thirty years? All you do <laughs> is don't put the names on it, and you just have somebody like can replace names, and 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 off you go, right? I mean, how do, what what goes through your head when you're kind of like how do you how are you talking to yourself? To sort of give it a new spin because it's it's so obvious over and over and over, but people still don't get it, if you will. Well, the beauty of news is <laughs> it is news. It hasn't happened before. So there's always going to be some event that people will be able to, oh, well, this time it's different. Yeah, exactly. Because of the event, I mean, Russia in, invades Ukraine. I mean, it's. U.S. Hard to come up with a recent you know, example Iraq. of a global event that's been more worrisome, and we can go back a ways, but that's you know, beyond the memory of many, many if not most investors. Uh, we didn't have negative interest rates in for most of financial history, like five thousand odd years, from what I can see. <laughs> so every now and again, there will be events that seem to be shockingly different interspersed with many more that's just the same old, same old. Markets often tend to go down before the economy starts to weaken and tends to go up, before it starts to strengthen. But somehow people seem to forget that explanation. So the current events is always new stuff. They're easily persuaded that this time it's different. So part of the reason I keep coming up with more current examples is to Link them to it. Well, actually, it doesn't seem to be that different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It there's, may be different in some details, but it rhymes. There's that piece, but the, but in in terms of underperformance and things like that, that's pretty consistent. I mean, over and over well, that, that. There will be. There could be periods yeah, could when be. some some superstar. I mean, Citadel is the superstar today, and Jim Simons or whatnot. Well, Jim Simons no longer will will manage your money. He's well, basically giving yeah. it all back. Now that he has a big mother load of fees that he charged for, for years and years, he doesn't need your money anymore. So yeah. even if you want to have Jim Simons manage your money, you can't. But even that's one in how many? Yeah, right. Right. I, I guess the, the, since we're running up on time here and we could go on forever, but this is more for a way to sort of to bring it back. How, in, your, in, your, in your conversations with advisors, once they get the joke of, okay, the investments – you know, you need to be more strategic in nature, et cetera, as opposed to tactical. How much of a sense do you hear from them saying, well, how can I add value? And it's ultimately in the planning. It's the stuff that Wade's writing about. It's the, you know, it, it's that exactly. kind of thing where you be create bespoke investment approaches with a financial planning piece. How has your perspective on that over the years changed, especially considering you started in as a 
mutual fund sort of evaluator for your previous firm to right. where you are now? Well, I think the, uh, the industry has changed to a considerable degree in terms of the nature of assets being managed so that a much larger fraction of the overall investor pool are, are using index-like funds or some version of that. And so I would say to a large extent, we've almost, not entirely, but we've largely won the so-called debate about whether active management is going to be more useful or not. And now a, a bigger question is, well, if that's the case, uh, why don't we all just invest in low-cost index funds and who needs an advisor anyhow? Well, number one, many investors, maybe not most, but I think many investors still have trouble staying in their seats in an index fund or index type fund, which when markets go down, you know you're gonna lose money. You don't have the myth that maybe somebody can protect you. You know you're gonna lose money. So there's still that temptation. But also I think life in general, particularly for wealthier investors, seems to get more complicated year by year. We have more a more complex tax code. We have more issues about retirement planning and various buckets. Do we have a 401k? Do we have other types of retirement savings? How much, when should I claim social security? I think some people figure out there are like several dozen different social security claiming strategies. Well, which one should I pick that's going to be best for my spouse and I? How do you unravel Medicare Part B? I went I attended a financial advisor conference when there was some expert talking about Medicare. I'm like, holy cow, I didn't know what I didn't know. Sure. You know, I'm glad somebody else is like, you know, on top of this kind of stuff because I don't want to have to figure it out. So I think there are there are lots of things an advisor can do for an individual, including maybe acting as the financial quarterback to make Did you have that will updated when, uh, you know, you had a, you, you adopted another child or something? And have you checked the beneficiary of your IRA account? Oh, do I have one? Oh, wait a minute. I'm not sure I did. You know, there are a lot of things to keep track of to make sure you're going to achieve what your investment portfolio is trying to do. A lot of moving parts. And the wealthier the client, the more complex things, things seem to be. No, that's great. And and Wade, just uh, maybe as as we wrap things up here, how, how, you know, you you've heard Weston here get you know provide his take. Wade Wade just has his, the second edition of his uh, retirement planning guidebook out. Uh, we released yesterday, uh, so by the time you hear this, probably a, a few weeks into it. But when you're when you're think when you were hearing Weston's answer, Wade, how how did you think about that within the context of the the book that you just released, because he was talking about Social Security, he was talking about Medicare, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that's where an advisor can really add monetary value. Your, your thoughts, Wade? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for just listening today, this was a great masterclass in all these concepts. And I, I did that investment education for myself 10, 20 years ago and don't really think about it all that much these days because so <laughs> mainly letting you guys talk about these topics because I, I am focused more on those planning issues and the investment piece, it's really been commoditized to a great extent where there isn't a lot of value to be added by choosing investments. And therefore it is important for advisors to offer that value through other outlets, through the social security claiming and the Medicare decisions and the long-term care planning and, and everything else that goes with building a financial plan. And I focus particularly at retirement, but 
course, pre-retirement as well. That's where ultimately the value can be added and, and where a lot of the attention can be paid increasingly in the future for advisors. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think at this point, Weston, thank you so much for your time here this afternoon. This was a really, really great discussion. We didn't talk too much about the, the financial media, but really, really great history lesson on, you know, just kind of how to think about a lot of these kind of big concepts around investing. Um, so again, thank you so much for your time. It was a really, really great discussion. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see you around. Good. Thank you very much, Bob. Great opportunity for me to talk to you folks. No, thank no, you. that's been great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And Bob, thank real you. quick, financial media. They, 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 they try to play on your fear and greed. Ignore there we it. go. There, we that's talked about it, and that's pretty much it. They're selling your eyeballs. There you go. Well, they got to come out thank with you, every Weston. month something to say. So. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Weston. Wade and Alex are both principals in McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC-registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results.